Hello and welcome to the Price of Football podcast, the podcast that follows the money behind the beautiful game. I'm Kevin Day and with me as ever is the Baron, the country's leading football finance expert. How are you, Kieran? I'm very good, thank you, Kevin. Good. Uh, I'm going to say this straight away, Kieran. I'm not happy. Oh. Because there's, there's been a change in this pod. I got a note from the producer to say that you'd, some part of it was going to be taken up with a pre-recorded interview you did with somebody. I'm no. sorry, yeah. It, it, it's a troll uh, separation, Kevin. Well, you know, the way I look at it, you are Johnny Numbers, I'm Billy Words. So essentially, <laughs> I don't know where that interview took place, and I will concede it's a very interesting interview. But, you know, the fact that you just went off willy-nilly, randomly did it, it's it's literally like me getting a spreadsheet out in front of you and trying to make sense of it. You'd be furious, wouldn't you? Absolutely. Well, okay, well, that's coming. <laughs> now, I just wanted to clear the air, because we're sitting at rather a small table looking at each other. And I didn't want you to be wondering why I was looking so cross. <laughs> uh, coming up in this episode, apart from Kieran going rogue, uh, Everton, basically, will be looking at the numbers uh, as they become the second Premier League team in the last couple of weeks to post losses of more than £100 million. Uh, we have that special interview with a uh, mystery catering guy. And, uh, as a little bonus, who can't afford to sell players? Which I'm looking forward to. Now, Everton. Growing up, and in recent years, Everton one of those clubs you always associated with stability, decency, good club, good fans, some success. Always felt rather sorry because you know, everyone thinks Liverpool is Liverpool. But in the last couple of years, there's been a sort of rather a sea change. Because sort of, you know, we had Bill Kenwright for years, who is, as we know, one of the good guys in, in football. But posting losses of £100 million, that's a big number, isn't it? Very much so. Well, uh, that, that is a big number. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> that is a big number. I'm implying that's a big number compared to what you'd expect. It, it's certainly a sea change as far as Everton are concerned. Um, under Bill Kenwright, they, they tried to break even. Mm. And uh, you know, I, I, as you know, I, I work in Liverpool um, and I'm aware of, of the, how the finances used to operate. And sometimes Everton would have had the, the bank manager on to say, um, you need to sell, sell a player this particular window because um, you've got bills to pay and Bill Kenwright himself didn't have the, the, the degree of wealth that he could just go and do, do an Abramovich. That's, I'm sorry, this, new listeners to the pod will know that we do tend to veer off every now and again when Kieran throws a bit of information at me I wasn't expecting. Is that common that a bank would would go to a club and say, sell? A, yeah, well, they would suggest selling a player to repay a, a loan. Very much so. If you're close to your overdraft limit, the bank would say, "How? It, what are your cash projections over the next three or four months? We think you're in danger of exceeding your limit. Really? So therefore, how else can you generate extra money? Well, if you're a football club, you can't play more matches. You can't sign more sponsorship deals. You know, the, the code word is you better go and sell a player. Uh-huh. And, and that's, that is not uncommon even in the Premier League. So uh, you know, Bill Kenwright is a great guy. He's Everton through and through. Um, and I think fans should never forget that. 
but there was sort of a growing resentment among some Everton fans that the club was flatlining in, mm-hmm. in its existing position um, and it had relied on initially David Moyes to be you know, relatively successful. But I, I think once you become established in the Premier League, and I think you, you're, you at Palace might be experiencing this, what is the extent of your ambition at the start of a season? Should we be doing cartwheels if we get to ninth instead of 11th and yes. things of this nature? Yes, yes. Everton have Very been much, there yes. far longer yeah. than either of our clubs. And I think their fans felt, well... We're, we are established. We are, we've not been relegated ever uh, as far as the Premier League going far, far f- further back as well. Um, so where exactly do we stand in a world where we now have oligarchs and, oligarchs and sovereign wealth funds coming in to run football clubs uh, who are pumping in huge sums of money? So in, in 2016, I think it was, Farhad Mashiri appeared. Um, he initially bought 49% of the club. He's, he's now got control of the club. He's increased his stake. And in the space of three years, he's stuck in £350 million um, into the playing budget with mixed results. Yeah, can I point out, I'm always close to my overdraft limit, unfortunately, from the other side. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he's put this into the playing budget. It, how come then, and this seems like an obvious question, if he's put 350 million in, how come they are 150 million short? Well, they've posted losses of that huge well, number. Well, he, he's, he's put 350 million in over the course of three years. Right. Uh, but also, the, the way that you sign a football player is, is the money goes, you, you buy the player effectively up front, and then the cost is spread in the accounts yes. over okay. a series of years yep. you know, with this thing called amortization, which is yeah. you know, the dark arts of accounting. Uh, raising their heads once again. So is, is this model sustainable then, the amount of money he's putting in? Well, it, it's sustainable. How, how rich is he, is the question. He, well, he is uh, He is very rich. I think we, he's probably close to being a billionaire. But the other issue, he is a business partner of Azimir Usmanov, mm. who is seriously rich. He's one of the, the probably the top 10 richest people in the country. Now, um the reason why they have a football connection is that Usmanov used to own a significant amount of Arsenal, mm. and as did Mashiri. And Mashiri sold his shares to Usmanov and then used the proceeds to invest in Everton. Since then, we've had a bun fight at the, at the Emirates, and uh, Usmanov has walked away from Arsenal and he's sold his shares to an American called Stan Kroenke. Mm-hmm. So we've now got this billionaire with an awful lot of money um, sitting around wondering what to do with it. And I think uh, we've started to see links between Usmanov and Everton. So the first thing that he did was that he sponsored the training ground. Um, And in the first year, he said, my company, USM Holdings, which is a a Russian internet company and metal exchange, paid £6 million to to sponsor a training ground in Merseyside. So you're not going to get a big return on that. Essentially, they're paying six million quid to put a plaque up saying they're sponsored by USM, whatever it is, isn't it? That's right. And then they doubled that to 12 million last season. And what he's done now, and now we're sort of reaching sort of very strange behaviour. Fantasy level, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, he's now paid 30 million pounds for the naming rights Options. He's not even committing himself for the naming rights for Everton's new stadium, which has not yet been given planning permission. So 
that appears to be he's just giving an extra thirty million pounds, and and the cynics say he's doing that because Everton have got FFP issues, and this is a way of addressing those. Well, we've talked at length about Derby, Sheffield Wednesday, selling their own ground to each other and breaching FFP rules. This, to me, seems an identical situation. It's basically, Everton have found a way for somebody to give them money to flout the FFP regulations, haven't they? They've, have the Premier League not noticed this? The, I, my understanding is that the Premier League's reaction was, well, we never saw that coming, so therefore it's not illegal, so therefore get full steam ahead. So it's not one of the things when they sat down to write the FFP rules, no one thought, well, this could happen, so it's not... No, I mean, it, it, I mean when the FFP <laughs> well, rules came out, as you know, I, I wrote down a dozen you know, cunning schemes. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, Baldrock would have been impressed by them himself. So would Baldrick, his brother. <laughs> yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, Although, Baldrock, I would watch a character of Baldrock. That's in the deleted scenes, I presume. Yes, he'd be the, the worst wrestler ever, wouldn't he? <laughs> WWF Baldrock, yeah. Uh, so that's that's really interesting. The fact that they haven't flouted the rules because they didn't think they'd need that rule, essentially. Very much so. Right, well, so... Clever lawyers could be looking for other rules that are not in there that they could. There, there's there's always there's always a way if if you try hard enough and and you are creative enough. So since 2016, a lot of the money then has gone on managers, isn't it? They've they spent a lot of money on managers, and it does beg the question. I know they're billionaires. How are they affording Ancelotti? That is uh, th- that's an interesting one. Uh, I mean, um, An- I aim for one a show, Kieran. <laughs> <laughs> Ancelotti's on uh, an alleged ten to twelve million pounds a year. Um, that's that's a significant upgrade on, on Silver. Um, and also, of course, you've got Silver's redundancy package as well to pay for. Um, they, I think they paid around about fifteen uh, fifteen million pounds when Robert- Roberto Martinez was manager. So. How they're affording it, that, that's leaving a lot of people scratching their heads. Um, you know, I'm not saying this is the case, but there are ways of um, having people having parallel contracts, for example. So if I wanted you, if I wanted to employ you as a football club, I could pay you £5 million a year, and then somebody else connected to me could be paying you £10 million a year. Now, there's no evidence of any of this type of activity taking place with Everton, but you know, if, 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 a, if an amount of money has to be paid, there are ways of dealing with that. So I, I don't think Everton have a problem in terms of the cash, because between them, Mashiri and Osmanov have, have sums of money which, which are beyond our comprehension. Um, it's just a case of have they satisfied the rules and with uh, schemes such as, as we have seen in respect of the training ground and now the, these, uh, uh, these rights to potentially have naming rights, um, I, I think they'll be fine. Well, a, a double-edged question to finish. Is your instinct that Mashiri and Usmanov are in this for the long term to compete with Liverpool, Man City and... If that's the case, how far behind Liverpool and Man City are they at the moment? Um, they they are wanting, if you take a look at Mashiri's comments, he wants to win the Premier League, he wants to qualify for the Champions League. One of the ways of doing that... You'd be amazed if a Premier League owner didn't say that though, wouldn't you? I, I think it. Oh I no! Think... Actually, if Steve Parrish did say that, you'd be you would you'd send for the men in the white coat. Fair. I, re, I retract that last question, but yes, for a club of that size and for the amount of money he's put in, you would expect him to say we should be winning the Premier League. That's right, but even so, three hundred and fifty million pounds compared to the amount that uh, UAE have put into Manchester City, compare that to Abramovich um, at Chelsea, is still small beer. 
Um, I think the problem that Everton have, and, and I, I love and I loathe Goodison Park as as, as a as a place to go to. I, I love. I love the environment. I love the smell of the place. You know, it, yeah, it is old school it's stadium, pro- proper stadium, proper stadium. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm six foot three. I can't sit down, and when I do stand up, I can't see the pitch because it's got such a low roof. So they are planning to move to a new stadium now. Everton Which looks beautiful. I mean, overlooking uh, the, the harbour type thing. It's stunning. Built over the water, isn't it? It's built over the water, but it's also built on a. And an abandoned dock. There's nothing else around it. So ah, okay. I think what they're trying to do, so like West Ham to an extent. Then. Yes. Yes. Okay. Is they're trying to build it, use it as a hub to attract retail and and other uh, other interested parties. And on the back of that, the whole area will be regenerated in a in a similar way to what we've seen um, at the Etihad in Manchester. Mm. So that's that's the master plan. Everton needs to do that. Everton generated less money from match day last season than they did 10 years ago. And and they're only generating... How, how so? Well, what they have been doing is that they're incredibly progressive in terms of pricing. Oh, so okay. uh, the, the pricing for kids is absolutely fantastic. Good. Um, and therefore, m- less money is coming through the turnstiles overall. Um. If you compare them to Manchester United, Everton are generating fourteen million pounds from match day. Manchester United one hundred and ten. You've got oh, Liverpool wow. at eighty one, yeah. right. and I expect Liverpool to go up. You've got Arsenal towards one hundred million. Spurs are going to be close to one hundred million. Everton have to bridge that gap somehow. So a new stadium is one way right. of achieving that objective. The other way of achieving it is, of course, to play more matches by qualifying for Europe. You put those things, two things together, um, and they, they they can they can start to generate the money. The problem they've got is that if you take a look at what happened with Abramovich and Mansour, they were operating in the pre-financial fair play era. So they could lose as much money as they want. Right. Yeah, Manchester City still hold the world record, and we like world records we uh, do. in this country, world record losses of £197 million in a season. And, and that, that's, you know, think of all the zeros that, that get thrown into that. Um, and... On the back of that, three years later, they won the Premier League. Can Mashiri and Usmanov achieve that as far as Everton are concerned? The danger for them is that they're going to hit the FFP limits. So it goes back to what we have said before, is that the purpose of FFP is to prevent another Manchester City or Chelsea. And I think Everton are the prime example of what the existing elite are trying to do. It's to have that glass ceiling in football. Well, Let's move on to... Economics that I think most fans listening to would be able to grasp more easily, and that's out of basically a £5 for a pint of beer level, essentially. Because one of the things that most people in football grounds moan about more than football is queues, costs for sandwiches, costs for pies, etc. And you, behind my back, went off to interview somebody. Now, you interviewed somebody who's run catering fans, but he's signed a, a non-disclosure agreement with some one of the clubs he used to work for, so he's, he's Mr. X catering manager basically um this is a really interesting interview and i people should listen to this all the way through because it's not an area that we've sort of con- consider where catering fits in so there's some really interesting insight into this interview very, very much so i mean we, we met in a travel lodge in manchester <laughs> um you stayed the night didn't you <laughs> 
this relationship is breaking. You know that, Kieran. <laughs> and, and I'm claiming expenses on it of as well. You are. I, imagine, I wouldn't expect anything less. Thirty-five pence a mile, I guess. <laughs> um, so, so we had this meeting, and, and you know, I, I grumble about catering prices, but actually, from from sitting down with Mister X, and he and he was you know very open and honest. Mm. Um, if you think about it, if, if if I go to a restaurant, that restaurant's open three hundred and sixty-four days a year. Yeah. Football grounds open twenty-five, and and you've still got to have you to employ the staff. If you're looking at it from a from an alcohol point of view, you've got the pipes need cleaning at the end of of a match. Now, how many miles worth of pipes are there in a football yeah. ground? Kira, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop you there because the the first rule of uh, introducing an interview is not to tell people what's in the interview. You're giving all the gold away. Right. So let's let's listen to the interview and then we'll we'll regroup afterwards. Absolutely. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insights, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. This is the day after Manchester City have just stuffed United uh, in the first leg of the Carabao Cup. I don't imagine that uh, United fans would have been trying to drown their sorrows last night. But looking at the beer prices, it's at least £4.50 for a pint at United. So we thought we'd try and find out how much uh, the club's making and who else is making money out of a football deal. And I've managed to find somebody who I can only regard uh, as an expert in the field, um, to, to save his blushes, I'm going to refer to him as Mr. X. Um, and uh, welcome to the show, Mr. X. Thanks Thank for coming you. in. Thank you. Um, so £4.50 at minimum for a pint at Old Trafford. How come it's so much? Well, you've got, you've got a multitude of little bits that everybody takes from that. So, so Manchester United would be slightly different to most Premier League clubs in that they do their own catering, whereas most clubs, um, most clubs uh, outsource to four or five main players. A couple of them have got smaller, smaller companies that, that do their own. Um, so you start at £4.50, though. You've got to take the tax off of that, so you're at, three, you're at £3.75. Um, there's a brewery deal in there. So I, I believe Old Trafford is Heineken. So there will be an uh, an upfront uh, uh, check to the club for that for a minimum barrelage that the club will will purchase. So that um, means that the brewery are guaranteed Manchester United a minimum amount of money. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So they they would say here's a check. This is. Uh, uh, you, you now have to buy all your beer from us, right? Uh, or your catering partners would have to buy beer from us. But at Old Trafford, we know that's just United. Um, so here you are. So you pay that up front, and the club go, "I'll take that money." That's got nothing to do with the price of beer now. So the the uh, the brewery will then say, "Okay," and this is a minimum charge, by the way, per barrel. So we've given you a check for however many millions. We're now a partner of the club. We'll be on your website. We'll be all around the stadium. We'll be branded everywhere. Uh, so the minimum price of a barrel will be 80, 90, 100 pounds, which equates to, to a charge uh, per pint. Um, 
it, that all depends on on the deal. I, I don't know quite what the uh, what Heineken will have paid to Manchester United, but whoever is looking after the cage at Manchester United will say this is a price you have to pay for a, for a pint of beer. So that's your minimum. So you start with there. So you're already uh, you've got a big chunk taken off there. You then got to pay the person behind the bar to serve you the beer. Uh, that's slowly. Not, well, yeah, slowly. Uh, uh, it will get to you eventually. Uh, it might be fifty percent head, but. You know, we, that's how we serve it up here. So you know, you, you're paying fifty percent of froth, but your pint is full. Um, they've got their minimum wage that has to be paid. If they're on minimum wage, they, they may be slightly higher. But anybody serving you beer uh, at a football match, if they're on more than minimum wage, that's that's very rare. It doesn't really happen anymore. Well, some clubs have committed to the living wage. Um, the clubs have right, but they don't do the catering most uh-huh. of the time. So. Um, some clubs have said that we will say to all our contractors, uh, you must pay the, the, the minimum living wage, uh, right. for example. Um, but if, the, if there's a 10-year catering deal, you can't force that upon somebody who's signed a deal. No club is going to reduce their royalty based on um, uh, the, the living wage. I've not heard any, any club that has said, okay, well, you pay your employees more and you pay us less. Uh, I've, I've yet to hear that because it would be in the press, uh, at least to say, you know, we've done the right thing. Um, You've got to pay them a pension if they're, if they're earning a certain amount of money, if they're, if they're regular uh, workers. If, they, if the club is struggling to get employees, if, as you've said many a time, a stadium's open 30 times a year. Um, you're, you're often going to get people who that's their second job, third job. Uh, you'll need agency staff. The agency needs to make money from that. So you could be talking £10 an hour for some of these employees to be working there. Um, Straight away, your pint is what you're paying for it. You're essentially there's not an awful lot left in there for a third party catering company that would want to to make any money out, out of that. Um, and then there's also a budget that the club have got to hit. They've got, their catering department's got to be profitable if they're doing it in house. There's no option. You've got to charge four fifty. You've got, you've got to charge more than that potentially for, for for a beer, depending on some clubs wherever you are. So, so from what from what you're saying, it, it the only way the club really is going to make money and the caterers are going to make money is if they serve the beer faster. Now, I've, I've been to Spurs New Ground, and what they do is absolutely amazing. Why, why aren't clubs investing in the technology to speed up the service? So Tottenham have, uh, the, I think it's a bottom-up. That's right. Where it fills from the bottom, which, is, uh, which I've seen before. I, I've used myself. Um, first of all, our fans don't like them, because if you, uh, I don't know if you've ever drank out of one of them, but they have a hole in the bottom because the the, the liquid's got yep. to get in there some way. So there's a hole at the top so the, the fan can, can drink out of. And there's a hole at the bottom. You put right. your finger up, up through the, you know, sounds a bit rude. But you put your finger through the, the bottom of this pint. There's a magnet that actually um, seals the bottom of that pint. Oh, wow. You, you, okay. you put your finger through that and all your beer will come rushing out. Right. So initially, um, uh, the feedback I heard was, well, we don't want that. Because, you know, kids are going to run around and going to put the finger through our pints and our beer is going to go everywhere. Um, so the, there's an element of that. There's a, a mistrust. A lot of, well, uh, as a fan myself, uh, you know, Carlisle United supporter here, uh, the beer is terrible. It's, all, <laughs> it's been warm for ages, for years. It never tastes nice. You don't really trust the catering anymore. And I think, I think across a lot of football clubs, a lot of fans would say, we don't really trust the catering anymore. It's expensive and it's terrible, but... It's a tradition to have a pint at a football, really. It's, it's kind of, it's, it's one of those, it's an experience that, that you do. Um, uh, 
you've got to pay by ca- by card nowadays. You, yep. you shouldn't re- if you're going to pay by cash, cash is slow. But the person working behind the till has got to take your order. This person behind the till goes to that stadium as often as you do, um, if ever. Don't doesn't know how to use the till. Has then got to type it in. Has got to work it out. If you're paying cash, you've got to give them the cash. Work out what cash you need to give them first. They've yep. got to tell you how much it is. Then they give you the change, and then you go off. And that's only if you've got to the front and you know what you want. Right. You get to the front, and somebody says, I think I'll have two cups of coffee. Actually, you know what? I won't. I'll have a coffee and a beer. Well, that's time wasted. The guy at the back has got that ten times, because everyone goes up and says, oh, I'd, yep. I'd like to... Actually, no, I'll have this instead. So every time that you are adding on three or four seconds to that um, transaction, which is you know how it's termed, the guy at the back has got that, however long that queue is. So that's why it takes so long to get to get a beer served. So is that why so many of the grounds now we see are going cashless? They're, they're, it's going to be contactless cards or, or not at all? That's one of the reasons. So um, it's more efficient. Um, it's, it's generally cheaper. Uh, you have to employ people to count the cash. Yeah. Um, it's also a lot more secure. So every football stadium would, would experience theft. Um, a lot of the time they don't know what the value is. Um, it can be straight out the till. Uh, every football club would have uh, stories of people storing money in pockets, sides of, uh, sides of tills, in pint cups, trying to hide it. Or the mate would come up and say, can I have a pint? He's 20 quid and somehow they get £100 change. Uh, it, there's lots of ways. I, I, I can't... I must have seen about 10 different ways of stealing money from clubs. And it's all cash. Um, if someone's going to steal money through through a credit card, that, that's quite an ingenious way of doing it. And yeah. They probably yeah. should be doing something. I remember the last time I went to Wembley, I, I think I, I ordered two pints and a pie and I tried to pay with a £50 note and... They just looked at me and said, well, we're not accepting those. And yeah. instead, I had to give them two 20s and a 10, given, yeah. given Wembley prices. So, so it is pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it, it works for everybody to pay on card, unless you know, the, the average age of a football fan every season goes up by nearly a year because yeah. the, you know, the, the young fans aren't particularly coming through at the rate they used to. People are used to paying cash. Uh, it's, it's, it's one of those things. Carlisle United played Cardiff in the FA Cup on uh, last Saturday. Uh, and Carlisle had to, to say to all the fans, there's no cash, it's a cashless stadium, you, you, you've got to take well, a card. Carlisle United fans, we've never had car payments in our life at Brunton Park. <laughs> <laughs> how are you, how, what are we meant to do? How that went down, I, I don't know, but you'd have got people going to the front of that queue saying, oh, here's my money, and they're going, well, no, you can't. You, slowing the guy down at the back right. who wants his beer. Right. But now you've got these beers that have been served, which is wasted beer now. So when you come back to, why is my beer so expensive? Because that stadium is only open for 30 times a year, if they're serving draft beer, at the end of every game, all the beer in the lines has got to go. All these park kegs that have been opened have got to go. They will expire. They will go out of date. Right. So your waste is quite high. So it's not like a pub where you know we'll clean the lines every Sunday yeah. and we'll lose a bit in there. Well, in, a, in a football club, you've got to lose it. And if you've got a huge stadium, you've got miles of lines. So you could have two, mi- two miles worth of beer Good grief. that's got to go in these lines that... I don't know what the diameter is of a line of uh, for for a beer, um, but it's a lot. You're yep. talking thousands for the big stadiums. So, so actually, this is actually quite comforting because the feeling that I'm being ripped off every time doesn't exist. I mean, I don't actually drink alcohol myself, but I'm normally getting it from my mates. Yeah, uh, and <laughs> yeah, we've we've always sort of had a bit of a grumble about it. 
so from what you're saying, the clubs don't seem to be making a lot of money at half-time and pre-matches. Yeah. So where is the money being well, made? Up front. In- okay. You've got, it, you've got it up front. You've got that check at the start to say. And um, what about the prawn sandwich eaters? What's, what's happening in hospitality? <laughs> is that the place where the clubs are actually absolutely coining it in terms of catering and hospitality and things of that nature? Yeah, 100%. So you've, going back to the new Tottenham Stadium, um, so I believe they've got uh, attendance in their hospitality of nearly 10,000, I believe is, is what they're going for. They've got their their cheese place, they've got their own brewery apparently, according to the press. So um, those 10,000 uh, fans, you call them fans, I suppose they are fans. Spectators. Spectators um, in, in hospitality, they can, they can go from... Uh, you know, you can go to a nice warm room that you pay for your all your food and drink, and it's just a nice place to be, and it's warm, and it's you know you you're a halfway house between hospitality and and then the kind of the normal uh, right. seats, all the way to the top with the tunnel clubs. So Man City has a tunnel club, Tottenham has a tunnel club. It's this American approach of we want to be really close to the players and we want to see them walking past. Um, it's great but you're going to pay thousands and thousands for that. So you, mm. You're talking at least five figures a season for one of those tickets, just Agreed. for a seat. And quite often you'll need to buy a table. You won't be able to just buy one. Um, generally what happens in the, in the, in the football catering world um, within hospitality um, uh, with, a third, with a third party caterer who's, who's motivated to increase sales but deliver what the club wants, satisfy the supporter, but also make money out of it. They've, they've got, they can't lose money like a football club because... Mm they're in it for uh, to, to make money it's not a charity to them this is it's not it's not something that they get passionate about other than the quality of the food the quality of the, of the service they're providing um so they've kind of got all the angles to really look after they've uh, so they uh they're, they're truly having a, a hard time of try, trying to pass it they have three or four year contracts um in that probably third year they're thinking we want to keep the contract or get the contract again for four years' time. So they might start losing some money. Right. Um, uh, and going from, you know, just to retain the contract. But ultimately, they um, their margins aren't aren't super high. Uh, the, the, no catering company makes fortunes and millions out of, out of football clubs by um, uh, following what the club wants to do. So the club will set the prices in, in all areas. So within hospitality, um, you'll pay for your ticket, um, that will include the, the food and drink, obviously. Um, the catering company will charge the uh, the football club for that food and drink, which will have been agreed at the start of the season. And the the club will basically say, this is the price that we're paying, and there'll be a bit of negotiation. Right. Um, but this is what we're paying, and we want you to del- deliver good quality, which is at the sharp end, basically, for the, for the catering company. So the pro and sandwich brigade... Um, probably feel that they're getting charged quite a lot for the for the quality of, of food that they get but again mm. it goes back to that that pint at the, at the start of it all yeah. there's not an awful lot left to play with to to um for the for these caging companies to really say we'll deliver really good value for you it's 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 driven by the clubs entirely really okay now one of the things that kevin was asking me and i think it was one of the most recent shows was how many ways are there for clubs to be creative when it comes to financial fair play and um, I'd, I'd focus on two things. A, you can increase income, and B, you can cut your costs. Now, I'm, I'm looking at 
clubs outsourcing security and catering to to friendly people who charge them below cost in your experience am i just being a conspiracy theorist or is the opportunity and indeed are there clubs who are up to things which are unusual not not legal it's it's perfectly legal what they're doing but uh that they've got unusual relationships with some of their suppliers. Yeah, so so within uh, uh, Cajun, the, the, the club as a business, um, outside of, of the fo- football matches, will require services. So they'll require, uh, they'll have a, a lunch with you know their board, for example, or the, they'll have certain people in and they'll, they'll want to entertain them. Um, generally what happens is that they will say to the, these Cajun providers, it's at cost, please. Right. If the Cajun provider is really lucky and they really, you know, fight back, they might get ten percent on top of it. Um, I am aware of of certain clubs in the past uh, who, who've basically been told, "You're not making any money on this. Uh, for you to do the catering at a football club and for all, on match days, you've got to do all our stuff at cost." So the football club basically says, "We'll take your procurement uh, system where you get really good prices because you're buying all this other, other kind of uh, all these other products." Um, and uh, and we're not going to pay anywhere near what we should be paying for it, but we'll have it for thanks. Oh, we're not paying for that person who serves it either, because they're your employees. So we we won't pay for them either. So, so y- what what's in it for the catering company, or does it just happen to be that the catering company is a friend of a relative of one of the board of directors, and the club therefore, because it's getting it at cost or below cost, can make all the profit on a deal which which it wouldn't do under normal commercial terms. Yeah, I mean, you can have an event where the club will say we will. Uh, We'll run this event, and we're not going to pay for the catering. So the ticket price, we've got no, we've got no margin on that. We've made loads of money because we're taking one hundred percent of the ticket price, and we're not paying anything for it. We might have a speaker, or we might have a player who comes in, and they don't get paid an awful lot. So that's great for us. There are catering companies out there that are owned by some football clubs. Uh, there is one in particular that's uh, that has got a few other football clubs under its belt now. Mainly, many kind of League One, uh, right. League Two clubs, but a uh, a club that's recently joined the championship does own one of these uh, catering companies so is that another way of passing costs through somewhere else i mean i i don't particularly collect the financial statements like you do but uh, (laughs) nobody (laughs) nobody's that daft (laughs) um but yeah i mean there there is a there is a family that are that are uh, that are doing that to uh to get into other clubs i assume just from a commercial perspective but from their own perspective that if they're not having to pay the costs of certain things because they can pass it on through another entity that's nothing to do with football on paper other than they have a trading agreement with a football club um entirely possible well so it could be good news or it could be bad news could be, yeah. okay well thank you very much mr x this has been quite illuminating i think the sort of the takeaways from this that perhaps as fans we're probably not being as ripped off as as we think we are because, as I say, the, the club is closed 330 days a year, potentially, mm. certainly as, as far as the concourses are concerned. Uh, if, if, you, if you're foolish enough to want to go and pay a few hundred quid to watch a match um, in, in a catering, in a, in a hospitality area, well, as, as somebody that's stood on the terraces all of his life, I really couldn't care less. It's your loss, <laughs> not mine. Yeah, it sounds about right. That's kind of how it works, I think. And... Uh, is hospitality big in Carlisle? Um, I think ooh, there must have been about 100 people last time I went there. So is, that, is that watching the match or well, in hospitality? Well, it's turning into that. I think they're about to fill it with sheep next. I think that's, right. the, that's the new thing. But, um, it was five courses, actually, that we had there. Oh, wow. And it was, I think it was £40. 
So I'm plugging Carlisle United here. I should. Yes, it could well be sure. a, uh, some money in the post, but um, yeah, it's lovely. Okay, <laughs> terrific. Thank you very much. That's that's really interesting insight into what we would consider probably the low end of the football finance spectrum. The the prawn cocktail thing interests me. The fourth round of the FA Cup, I found myself in a in a box at West Ham. Uh, and of course, Danny Dyer was there. That's uh, seriously. <laughs> that was. Uh, I genuinely thought he'd been laid on to make it the West Ham experience. I, I've, I've written with Danny. I really like Danny. Uh, I, I, it's the most opulent corporate experience I've ever ever had. I, I don't, in general, I turn them down. I don't like them. I probably have one a year at Palace because I'm a trustee of the, the foundation. But I never enjoy them. They're never relaxing. But we got chatting. Uh, some friends are out. Now, Danny likes a drink. I like a drink. Some of the lads in there who were lovely lads couldn't believe their luck that the alcohol was free in there. So I, my friend Mark Webster and I, broadcaster of this parish, we worked out probably, I'd say, there's probably 20 bottles of wine drunk, twenty. so 300 quid's worth of alcohol, let's say, 100 quid's worth of food, two lovely people looking after us, hopefully being paid the living wage, so let's make that 200 quid for them if it's five hours each at a tenner, which is still shameful as well. So... Probably 500 quid. According to West Ham's own website, that box, I doubt this slightly, that box is worth, it's only £800 a, a game, right? which I thought was excessively low. But we worked out the economics of it. and we, So say there's 100 boxes, they're only making 300 quid profit. But over a season, we worked out, initially we thought that's about £1.9 million profit. And we went, well, that's brilliant. And we went, it's not though, is it? I mean, that's... That's a sort of, seems to be a drop in, you know, when you could have 5,000 seats there, we're selling season tickets at 500 quid a time. So where, what is the economics of the, of the, of the corporate hospitality? Well, I, I think West Ham are in a, an unusual situation is that they're trying to break into that market um, and they don't have the same um, appeal as the likes of Arsenal, Chelsea, Manchester United and Liverpool who have won cups and competitions. And therefore, attracting the prawn sandwich brigade is is a much harder job. If you if you go to um, Anfield, the Anfield hospitality experience is so oversubscribed that what oh, they right, now do okay. before a match is that they have it. Part of it is taking place at Aintree, and the people yes. are then being coached in. And because it is Liverpool, they're able to charge that much more. I, th- I think West Ham, to a slightly uh, to a slight uh, degree, are hostage to their history, whereby West Ham is a working class club, Very and nice. therefore the West Ham fan base would find it alien. Um, to do to to pay the type of money that the stockbrokers and the lawyers, when they're entertaining the clients, are willing to pay um, to go to to go to uh, grounds of clubs which have been more successful. Well, that's really interesting you say that because as you walk into this rather opulent lounge, from the boxes are off this lounge. As you walk in, there's a parade of photographs of players from the old Thames Ironworks with their names and with what they did. You know, Boilermaker Charlie, who played twenty games and. Riveters, and you, you'd like to you'd, you wonder what Boilermaker and Riveter Charlie would make of what's happening there, the corporate wise, because it's a constant theme with West Ham fans now. They miss Upton Park dreadfully, and as we know, Upton Park, like Everton, was proper football ground, hazardous to your health sometimes trying to get away if you'd won there. Yes. But there's, there is still a yearning, and as you said, there's a fan base that doesn't necessarily buy into this this new wealth and opulence, do they? Well, I think the West Ham fan base 
were given a promise. The promise was you're moving to a 60,000-seater stadia. That's going to bring in huge amounts more money. That money is going to be reinvested in the team, and therefore we're now going to be challenging. So um, if if you make promises and you don't deliver, uh, over-promise and under-deliver is is a real no-no as far as anything from a business strategy is concerned, then expect some form of backlash. Um, If you take a look at West Ham's accounts for their first season in the London Stadium – they made, I think it was, an extra £2 million worth of matchday income compared to their last season at Upton Park. Right. Now, for a, for a £150 million a year business, if I was a West Ham fan thinking, well, I'm not sitting with my mates anymore. Um, I'm that much further around from the, from the pitch than I used to be. Yeah. It's an absolute ball ache getting to the stadium. And also, I used to be able to walk there. I now have to go and catch, a, catch the tube. Yeah. I used to be able to go to the same cafe, the same fish and chip place. They're all gone yeah yep. part of your upbringing and history and heritage is gone yeah. and it's been replaced with something which is soulless and at the other end of the scale and i think i, I doubt that any football fan listening to, to that interview when they're sat in a queue or stood in a queue or sometimes sat at a palace that's how long they are will be will be taking your words you know mr x's words about how long the pipes are and how difficult the infrastructure is and getting you a pint because they just want to get served quicker um that's helped a palace. They, they don't pull pints anymore in some bars. It's all bottles, which is great. But there is something there, and most people would, would gloss over it. The contactless thing annoys me a little bit because every club now, every bar at Palace is contactless. Now, for six months, that was quite handy because my contactless chip wasn't working, so my mates had to get me the beer at half-time. It's, I've got a new card now. But there are, I would say there are a lot of football fans over the age of 70 who probably don't have contactless, who would rather deal in... In cash, and that, it irks me a little bit that suddenly you walk in one game and there's an announcement saying for the next game it's all contactless. It's slightly, it slightly alienates people a little bit, I think. I don't, I understand the logic of, of speed and not having money there, etc. And I, I love the imaginative ways that Terry X came up with people nicking the petty cash, but it is a little bit, it does sort of, uh, there are a generation of people for whom contactless isn't. The norm. I, I think that's a very valid point. I think part of the problem is is the people who are making the decisions are the contactless generation, and they yeah. and the and the other people sitting around the table also making those decisions are identical to them, and that's always a danger. It, it's unconscious bias, which we are all guilty of. I mean, the fact that me and you are having this conversation. I'm guilty to a certain degree of unconscious bias because when I first contacted you... How do you know? It's it's unconscious. (laughs) When I first contacted you, I never thought about it, but I have thought about it since. We're both born in South London. We're both in our 50s. We both support our local hometown club. And we're both middle-aged, middle, you know, white... You were were born in South London, you just said. You don't support Millwall, you support Brighton. Well, that's because my mum wouldn't let me go with my Uncle Terry. We've had this conversation before. Of course we have, yes. Yeah, Yeah, okay. Yeah, so carry on with your unconscious So, so, And I I did that. It it wasn't conscious, but look at us. We're not that far apart in in many regards, except that you're a professional comedian and I'm... Yeah, and, the spreadsheet. And, and your bank account is in the black. It would be my. That's where we're very far apart <laughs> because you're an accountant, and comedians aren't as clever as accountants with money. Um, I think it's worth mentioning as well, just to, to end this. Uh, if you are stuck in that queue at any ground, it is worth remembering how little those poor sods working yeah. behind the bar are getting paid 
because that's something that needs to be changed in football. I know Palace are paying the living wage. I know a lot of clubs aren't. That that's got to stop. Well, it's an absolute disgrace if if any club in the yeah. Premier League doesn't play, especially it. in London. Very much so. Yeah. And I think the other issue you have to concern there is that some clubs will say, um, well, our employees are paying the living wage, but what they've done is they've subcontracted out, subcontracted out catering and the catering companies so might not be paying. So do we'll look at the small print yeah. there. Right. Now, finally, and this is a question I didn't ever think I'd get to ask on this pod, even after 12 weeks of your company. There's a club who can't afford to sell their players. Can we name that club? We can name that club. That club is Stoke City. Stoke City? Stoke City. See, this is why I don't do research. This is why I don't ask you the question so I can be genuinely responsible. Would this be the same Stoke City that we've spent two weeks talking about having Bet365, the sponsors, the company that are worth 20 times more than the Premier League? That, the, the very the very same. I, I, well, I knew there wasn't another Stoke City, but they, <laughs> they can't afford to sell their players. How does that possibly work? It, it's not from a cash reason. It's the old spectre of financial fair play. What's happened is that when Stoke were in the Premier League, if you take a look at their uh, three most expensive signings, Vimmer, Umbula and Undai, um, and that, that has what, been researched. What, what impact they made. Yeah. <laughs> it, well, exactly, the yeah, fact yeah. that we can't remember them. Each of those cost Stoke a lot of money, but if you sell them at a loss, then that loss goes in for your FFP calculation. Oh, okay. So as a consequence, what they've done is that they've loaned them out elsewhere in Europe but Stoke are getting a small loan fee. They're still paying a significant proportion of their wages, but they can't actually afford to get rid of them until their contract's up. And it's, it's a, this is a classic case of the tail wagging the dog. The players don't want to be there. The clubs don't want to be there. But because of this lunacy of financial fair play and how it operates, Stoke are obliged to keep them until their contracts are either up or close to being up. Or until such time as Bet365 suddenly decide they're going to defy FFP rules and take whatever fine comes towards them. Well, fines are fine. Yeah. Um, uh, points, points deductions, deductions are, 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 the, uh, are the scary thing. I, I can't. I can't remember how many pods we've ended with the words points deduction of the scary thing, but we're ending the pod there. Uh, it's a de- adaptive production. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you do have questions for our special Monday pod, uh, please send them into questions at priceoffootball.com. If you do have lovely reviews, I can't tell you how much I resent after having to ask these reviews. Producer Guy, can, can we have a week off having to ask for these reviews? And stop, but you still didn't stop putting say hello to Kieran in the scripts either. <laughs> um, thank you for listening, and we will see you again on Monday. Cheerio, gang. Bye, son, for the